Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. for tuning in BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. We're thrilled to welcome Dave Mooney, founding faculty and lead of immunomaterials at the Wies Institute and professor of bioengineering at Harvard and serial entrepreneur to the show today. Thank you once again for joining us. To help co-host this special episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Chris Godbon. If you can kick things off for us, Dave, and share a brief intro with our audience, that'd be great. Sure. So um, going way back, um, so growing up, I'm the last of 11 children in my family. Um, my parents did not have college degrees, so I didn't grow up thinking or even knowing about science and technology. Um, but as a child, I loved to read, consume the Madison Public Library, um, got into science fiction, which led me to science and then to engineering, uh, as my parents always instilled in us a need to try to make an impact. So uh, when I got to college, I got interested in engineering, um, became a, a chemical engineer, actually. And from there, uh, over time, I was working actually for Dow Chemical for a little while and got very interested in biology and the idea of being able to manufacture drugs. Um, that actually led me to graduate school at MIT, uh, where I was fortunate enough to learn of the work of Jay Vacanti and Bob Langer, who were just starting to really engage and define the field of tissue engineering. And so that led me to expand my interest to cell biology and to how cells might be useful building blocks for tissues and organs. Um, and eventually that uh, made, convinced me that I uh, needed to stay in academics um, if I really wanted to take a shot at um, you know, achieving some of these long-term goals of impacting biology in the human body and led me to found my laboratory, which is really focused around the idea of trying to make uh, cell and macromolecular therapies effective and practical approaches to treating disease. Wonderful background. Thanks for the introduction, Dave. Uh, to help perhaps for our audience tie things together, what's been your North Star, uh, if you will, throughout your career? Yeah, I think the, the, the key feature that ties everything together that we've been working on for the years is that we're interested in understanding how the human body works and using the human body's inspiration for how we can manipulate cells and entire tissues uh, to address dysfunction and disease. Um, the aspect of biology that's particularly fascinated me is the materials that we find in the body. Uh, is the materials organized, they talk to, and they control cells. And if we can understand how they achieve that, then we can make synthetic versions of those that allow us to intervene and uh, alter disease processes and perhaps even promote regeneration. 
Wow, and what an incredible North Star that is and a, a bright future ahead in the field. Um, to piggyback off that question, one question we love to ask our, our guests to embark on episodes here comes from Dennis Gabor, electrical engineer and recipient of a 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. He says the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Uh, as someone whose work has helped shape biological research around the world, can you share with us what does inventing the future mean to you? Yeah, that's, that's actually a great question. So engineers such as myself, you know, we don't typically look to generate new knowledge for its own sake, but instead we want to solve problems. And fortunately or unfortunately, the problems of today and even the problems that we're going to face in the future are often pretty apparent. Um, and so as we aim to solve those problems, um, we end up creating the technologies of tomorrow, uh, basically, so we end up creating or inventing the future. But we're really doing that to address specific problems that we can identify. Um, you know, we often don't know when we start our journey how we will get to the destination of solving this problem. Uh, but as we have a destination, uh, it, it becomes pretty apparent as we go down that path what we need to invent to actually achieve our goals and actually get to uh, where we want to uh, eventually end up. Wonderful. And I'll pass it off to Chris now to talk about the Mooney Lab. Thank you, Chaz. And so excited to have you joining us, Dave. As you described earlier, you began your career in chemical engineering, even working at Dow to scale up manufacturing of a small molecule for use in clinical trials before making your way to bioengineering. So to help provide context for our audience, can you share how your engineering background guides your work? as you seek to understand the body's materials and then try to influence them to impact human health? Yeah, so the, um, in terms of my engineering background, I think a couple elements of this are really crucial. One is engineers, um, such as myself, we tend to think very quantitatively. Um, so, you know, we, we don't just think about things becoming, you know, kind of make it a little bit better, a little bit worse, but we, we tend to put numbers in place and we tend to set very specific objectives. Um, that I think actually help us then to understand the body, understand how it works. Um, and then we also, I think are quite good in general in engineering at beginning to work at a larger scale than individual molecules or individual cells. Engineers uh, often deals with systems where we start to think about many, many interacting molecules, many interacting cells, many interacting people. And if we think about the biology, that's what it's all about, right? Uh, it's really complex, there's lots of things happening, and we need to have some way of uh, trying to understand and make order out of what looks like chaos. And engineering tools and approaches are often very useful for that and allow us to actually then be able to not just understand, but then actually design outcome by designing technologies that intervene in the right place, the right time, and, and engage the body in a way that's gonna be productive. Incredibly fascinating. And changing gears slightly, but still focusing a little on your background, a more personal question, but can you share more about your experience as a first-generation college student and how that perspective shaped your journey? Yeah, that, well, it, it, it shaped my journey uh, in, in many, many ways. Um, you know, I, uh, when I arrived uh, at the University of Wisconsin as a freshman, um, there were 10,000 of us uh, as freshman year. Uh, we had about five minutes um, with an academic advisor and, um, you know, since my uh, parents didn't have college degrees, uh, there's no one that I knew growing up that was an engineer or a scientist or a physician. 
I knew basically nothing about professional opportunities that might be in front of me. Um, and so I you know, had this interaction with an advisor for five minutes and um, I'd taken some, some tests uh, when I first got there and he basically looked at my test scores and he you know, said, well, what do you wanna do? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, you know, why don't you uh, think about chemical engineering? You're good at chemistry and, and math and you, know, you need both those in chemical engineering. Um, and so I went down that path and on the negative side, you know, I was very naive. I didn't really know what an engineer did. Uh, I didn't know what a chemical engineer did, certainly. Um, so, you know, that, that had some, uh, I, I don't think I made a really highly informed decision. And during college, um, as a first generation student, I worked a lot. I was financially independent uh, when I moved out of my parents' house after I graduated from high school. So I, I worked a lot. Um, I didn't engage in research as an undergraduate. I didn't engage in academic clubs. So, you know, I missed a lot of the college experience. But on the other hand, um, you know, I didn't come to college with some preconceived notion of what I should do or what engineers did or what scientists did. I didn't understand that there were silos that we're supposed to stay in if we became an engineer or we became a physician or we became a scientist. And so on the really positive side, I was completely free to pursue whatever got me excited. And over time, I've realized that actually that was a, a great gift and a great opportunity um, to have uh, this freedom and to not recognize or feel that there were any boundaries on kind of what we did and where we went. And I really didn't have any sense of what these labels meant, which over time in our world, these labels mean less and less. As a first-generation student myself, your story is incredibly inspiring. Thank you for sharing. My and pleasure. After your graduate work at MIT, you headed to the University of Michigan to help lead the nascent tissue engineering department. Then in 2004, you returned to Boston to join the faculty at Harvard before helping co-found the VIS in 2009. Can you tell us more about your goals when you founded the Mooney Lab? Yes, you know, until that point in my career, I had been very focused on establishing my laboratory, you know, creating uh, an environment where I thought we could do first-rate research and, and really invent and technologies and generate ideas. But what we had not done so much was actually translate those ideas. And so when I first founded the, the lab for cell and tissue engineering at Harvard, my goal was to really begin to put more emphasis and explore how we could take the approach we'd been taking with technologies to that point in time, which was basically the old paradigm of simply throwing them over the fence and you know, somebody would license them and they'd go on run off with them. And sometimes that would work great. Sometimes that wouldn't work at all. And I wanted to be much more actively engaged in that process because I came to realize that you know, other people aren't out there to make your ideas and your dreams come true. You really have to do that yourself. And I particularly wanted to make basically cell and macromolecular therapies, basically more practical and more effective approach to treat disease. And I wanted to have a, more of a, a slant towards translation in my laboratory and really address some of the challenges that come with translation, not just the challenges that come with the initial invention. That guides us well into our next question. Have those goals that you set out to do changed, expanded, or perhaps been enabled over time, particularly with the founding of the VIS? Yes, you know, the, actually the, the founding of the VIS has been just absolutely transformative for me and my lab. You know, one of the things that, for me anyways, that I learned over time is that it's very difficult to do everything. You know, in my laboratory, if we have a technology that we're really excited about and we really believe is important, and we, within the lab, 
really focus on moving that towards translation, it does come at a cost in that we have to leave some other things. And what that typically ends up meaning is that we end up leaving some of the inventive part. So, you know, we have a choice in a, at least in my laboratory, I think of, you know, kind of one or the other, or anytime we emphasize one more, we emphasize the other less. And when we establish the VIS, which is really focused on translation and taking inventions out of labs and putting them into the real world, it actually was transformative and that it allowed me to, to do both simultaneously. So, you know, the VIS hires a lot of staff with incredible expertise in industry. And really the idea was it was gonna to pair together the academicians um, with people who actually on the translational side have equal experience and knowledge, but just in, in that realm as versus the academic more invention kind of realm. And so, you know, we can, can continue in my laboratory to do invention-based research, uh, but now with the VIS and engagement and collaboration with the VIS staff, uh, the engineers, the scientists there, we can then in parallel take the really, we think are important discoveries and begin to uh, pursue the translation within the VIS uh, without actually having to give up the inventive part of what we do at the same time. So it's really, it, it enables us to both do, to do both things and it also, allows us to actually do the translation much, much better. You know, experience takes time to get and bringing in people and being able to collaborate with people that have 20 years of experience, you know, in the medical device or the biotech or the pharma industry enables us to move so much more quickly than if we had to learn all of that ourselves. Um, so it allows us to do a lot more. It allows us to do basically it much better. So yeah, the, the VIS has been really an amazing engine for me personally, and I think for our whole community. What an incredible environment to be a part of and to have helped build. Drilling a little bit deeper into your focus in translation. Here at Alix, we believe that the key to changing the world starts first with identifying the right problems to solve. How do you select problems for the Mooney Lab to challenge? Yeah, that, that's actually a, a great question and, a, and I think an absolutely key aspect um, to, to success in these spaces. You know, the, the general approach that we take is that um, you know, there, there's problems that, um, there's all kinds of problems. Um, there's some problems that are at a big scale and some that are at a medium or small scale. Um, and there's some problems that it's clear that if you address the problem, um, that it will actually help a lot of people. And so part of how we select problems is by this, the scale of the impact if we are successful in addressing that problem. So we kind of look at the problems, um, that uh, we identify, think about it from that perspective. Um, we also you know, get engaged in the perspective of trying to think about, are we the right people to try to solve this, to solve this really big problem? I mean, is the tool set that we have available and that we can bring to bear you know, a, a productive one? Um, or is there a different tool set that somebody else could, could do this better and, and easier? And we have no desire to you know, to do something that somebody else can do better. So we really look to see, can we make an impact? And then, uh, you know, it comes down to people, right? I mean, if you don't have the correct people, you're never going to make the progress. So, you know, we look both within the lab to see if we have the right people with the right passion, the right expertise inside the lab. And then can we identify the right people outside the lab to collaborate with and enable us to move forward, you know, in a reasonably quick manner. Virtually nothing we do is isolated within our own lab. It's pretty much all the interesting things are at the 
spaces between fields. And so we need to collaborate and we need to identify the right people to collaborate with in virtually all of our projects. It sounds very people driven. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, if you don't have the right people and you don't enable those people to be successful and enable them to be successful, even when they fail, you know, along the way, then I don't think you really get anywhere. So it's for me, the, the most important aspect is the people and how do we actually not just uh, kind of use people for what they know, but how do we enable those people to actually grow intellectually and personally and become leaders because that's very frequently, you know, we're going to take the first step or two in the first couple of years, but these are going to be long-term projects that are going to need long-term commitment. And so oftentimes, you know, some of the people we start with in the lab are going to be the people that are going to then help push those things further along down the road. Now that we have that better understanding of how you select problems, can you share more about what you're addressing right now? Yeah, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, um, we're, we address a lot of different things, uh, both, uh, a weakness and hopefully a strength in some ways. So we're kind of all over the place, but some of the things that we're addressing right now that I'm really excited about is we're very interested in using mechanics and mechanical cues to address problems in biology. And as a kind of background for this, you know, we tend to live in the biotech and the pharma industry uh, and fields in a very chemistry focused uh, field, right? We tend to use chemistry to solve all of our problems. We come up with a new drug molecule, for example. Well, we're really interested in the physical side as well. So, you know, in our bodies, they're constantly being subjected to different stresses and strains. So mechanical cues are really important. The different tissues in our body have different mechanical properties. And so we're looking at that and we're wondering if we can use mechanics, similar to the way we today use drugs, to promote regeneration, to alter immune cell behavior, and to generally address uh, deficient deficiencies or dysfunction in the body. So for example, you know, we collaborate with people like Connor Walsh to develop soft robotics systems that allow us to minimally invasive manner, physically manipulate muscle to promote regeneration. We try to control stem cell fate by designing materials that present specific mechanical properties that we think are really important and will enable us to control how those stem cells differentiate and function and reform tissues. You know, this kind of fundamental work ends up leading to all kinds of interesting questions about how do we, how do we get these devices to stick to the body parts we want them to. So, you know, we get into medical adhesives. Uh, we start to see that maybe, you know, this idea of having mechanical, the right kinds of mechanical properties might be important in implantable classic medical devices as well. So maybe we need to start redesigning some of those. So they take uh, the mechanics of the tissues they interface into account. You know, we're very interested in controlling more broadly stem cell fate. So we're trying to grow tissues using pluripotent stem cells that can be used both outside the body as well as back inside the body. And we're developing material systems that enable us to manipulate those cells, control how they assemble, how tissues begin to grow, how they achieve form. And then, you know, we're very interested in the biological space from the context of immunology. So, you know, we've been developing therapeutic vaccines for a number of years, and that's led us to a more broad interest in T-cell biology, so adaptive immunity, and how we can regulate the fate of the immune system all the way starting in, you know, progenitors, all the way through, you know, expansion of specific T-cell populations that might be relevant to things like cancer or other types of diseases. 
So, you know, kind of a broad spectrum, different problems right now we're trying to address, you know, how do we expand T cells to generate the right kind of function? When we adaptively transfer those cells, how do we design medical devices to interface with tissues deep within the body and promote regeneration? How do we deliver drugs at the right time, the right place? So a number of different challenges, but all ones that we think that our technologies and our approaches can be useful. As we keep the conversation going, I'd love to dive into that last topic a little bit further and talk about building immunity with biomaterials. So your work at the VIS falls under the heading of immunomaterials and combines your knowledge of mechanistic cell biology, as you described, to build novel biomaterials to boost their overall therapeutic effects. To kick things off for this topic, can you provide a brief overview of what the term immunomaterials means to you? Yes. So to, so to me, that term indicates that we're going to use a material, so a, a physical entity, whether it's a nanoparticle, a microparticle, or some bulk, you know, larger scale device that we're going to use to put in physical contact with various immune cells. And by bringing the cells in contact with these materials, we're going to impact those cells. We might change their fate. We might change their function. We might change how they interact with other cells in the body with the net goal then of either being able to create an immune response where one might be useful, uh, typically, for example, in the context of cancer, or maybe to tune down an undesirable immune response. So as we talk about that physical contact, how do spatiotemporal regulation and mechanotransduction tie into your work? Yeah, so the, uh, the really key aspects um, for some of the approaches we're now taking. So in terms of the spatial temporal regulation, you know, biology is complex. And usually there's many players that interact and they interact in specific patterns in space that can be very important. I mean, if you think about, you know, how tissues develop, if you think about our immune system, the different cell types engage in specific spatial locations, you know, the lymph nodes are key places uh, for generating adaptive immune responses when antigen presenting cells engage with B cells and T cells. So space and time matter in terms of the signals we provide and the interactions that we enable. And so we develop materials then that we can control how they engage spatially with different cell populations in the body. And it may be that we place them where we want them to go, or it may be that they actually have to traffic there. So we design them so they have the right properties so they'll get to the right place. And then we need to have the right cues and the right sequence. Um, even if the right players are together, oftentimes they engage in a specific sequence of events that's very important. It's kind of like you know playing music. You could play all the notes together, but that doesn't make a song. You need to play them in a, in a particular sequence. And so, you know, we design materials that provide the right cues in the right order to not just start a process, but hopefully drive it to completion or at least far enough along um, that we're able to achieve some specific therapeutic response. And the mechanics of this, as I mentioned a moment ago, really do figure into this. Um, we're increasingly appreciated that mechanics is really important in the body. And while immune, immunology has largely been a field that I would say is dominated by the chemistry aspects, uh, we're beginning to transfer or apply some of our thoughts about mechanotransduction to immune cells. So for example, we're finding now that the ability of monocytes, uh, which are key immune cells, uh, to differentiate in an antigen-presenting cells is really impacted by the mechanical properties of the microenvironment in which they find themselves. So their ability to either stay immature and not really engage with the immune system, 
or to differentiate and form, for example, inflammatory dendritic cells is tightly regulated by the stiffness and the viscoelasticity of the matrix or the tissue that they're within. Similarly, T cells, we're finding their ability to, to function appropriately in the context, for example, of killing cancer cells is dictated not just by the chemical milieu, but also by the mechanical milieu and, you know, and how the mechanical properties of the cancer or the tumor are changed can also change how T cells engage and perhaps limits their ability to clear cancer. Taking those insights together, can you share more about your work in immune engineering today? Yeah, uh, I, I always kind of feel that these kinds of questions are a little bit difficult because when you get asked to talk about just one aspect of your work, it's kind of like when somebody asks you if you have a favorite child, you know, you, <laughs> you uh, <laughs> today you might have a favorite child, uh, but overall, hope you love all your kids the same. So I'll pick out a few things, but I hope everyone listening to this from my lab understands that uh, I love all their projects and just these are things that are coming, coming to mind. So maybe I'll start with that latter one I was talking about you know, we're, we're really interested in how the mechanical changes in a tumor alter immune cells. And this is important potentially from a basic science perspective and helps us understand maybe, you know, for example, why T cells aren't so good at clearing cancerous cells and in, in solid tumors, and maybe why checkpoint blockade isn't so effective all the time. So it can be some basic science, but it also then potentially gives us new targets for therapies. If we can start to understand the mechanisms by which cells, immune cells engage physically and get signaled by the changing, let's say, fibrotic tissue in a tumor, that potentially opens up new targets that we could then engage and aim to address from a therapeutic perspective. And so we're, we're really interested in that question of using mechanics to identify therapeutic targets. We're exploring that in a couple different projects right now. We're also, you know, continue to be really interested in the idea of developing therapeutic vaccines. And these are actually a, a great example of the spatial-temporal aspects, uh, you know, the last question you had asked me about. So we're trying to develop materials that do not rely on kind of chance to enable um, immune cells to be generated with delivery of antigens. So we're developing materials that in some ways mimic infections in the body in that they actively reach out and recruit large numbers of the relevant immune cells, in this case, antigen-presenting cells, such as dendritic cells, to come to the site where we inject them. So we now quantitatively have a big advantage in terms of the number of cells we're able to bring to that site and expose to adjuvants and antigen to get lots of activated antigen-presenting cells. And then we induce these cells to traffic back to the lymph nodes, engage with B cells and T cells, and generate adaptive immune responses uh, both from a humoral as well as a cellular perspective that could be useful in, in a variety of contexts, uh, in particular interest in the clearing of solid tumors. So, you know, here we're designing these materials, they control in space and time, some of the signaling, where the cells are, where they go. Um, and we think that that might be really relevant. And then, you know, we're actually beginning to bring together, you know, some of these, a combination of these, where we've been thinking about the vaccines, mainly from a chemical perspective, um, but now we're beginning to wonder if maybe we need to actually design vaccines, thinking about the physical properties and the mechanical properties as well, since we're now learning in the tumor that's so important. Building on your work at the VIS, you also co-lead the Immunoengineering to Improve Immunotherapy, or I3 Center, which was founded in 2020 as a cross-institutional and cross-disciplinary part of the NIH's Cancer Moonshot. 
Can you tell us more about the I3 Center and what you're working on? Yeah, sure. That'd be, it's, it's fantastic. Um, so as you mentioned, this is part of the Cancer Moonshot Initiative. And this particular initiative is intended to accelerate the advancement of cancer immunotherapy to patients. And so the, the approach here is to enable through the center us to bring together the right players. And so uh, incredibly fortunate. So Steve Hody, uh, who's head of, among other things, uh, the melanoma area at the Dana-Farber, uh, and I serve as co-PIs on this. So we're able to bring together you know, a cancer oncologists with tremendously deep clinical knowledge and then you know, bioengineering knowledge. To complement that, we're able to bring them together. And then we're able to draw in an incredibly talented group of faculty, including people like Kathy Wu, uh, William Shi, who's both at the Dana and at the VIS, David Skadden, who's part of the, uh, who's at MGH and a hematologist and part of the Harvard Stem Cell Institute, Jerry Ritz. So a variety of people we're able to bring together here. And the goal is to take what we understand from some of the basic science, design materials that can enhance immunotherapy. And we're doing this by really focusing on T-cell biology and more or less looking at the life cycle of a T-cell in the body and identifying where we could try to intervene to improve outcome. And there's three stages that we're looking at right now as key parts of the center. Uh, the first is trying to rebuild immunity. So in certain settings, there is a deficiency of adaptive immunity. In an acute setting, one sees that following a hematopoietic stem cell therapy, which is a therapy that is used uh, in a number of types of cancer that involves a stem cell transplant. Well, very frequently, these patients don't reconstitute T-cell immunity for months or even years, and this leaves them susceptible to, to many types of opportunistic infections. They get graft-versus-host disease, so there's all kinds of problems. So what we're attempting to do is to design new material systems that we can place in the body coincident with the stem cell therapy. And the concept is we create a healthy niche within the body to which we recruit these transplanted stem cells. And then we specifically direct the daughter cells to differentiate and become T cells. And by doing this, we dramatically accelerate the rate of T cell reconstitution. Um, at this point in time, we've demonstrated this in rodent models and humanized uh, mouse models. And actually we just, uh, as of today, uh, had the first implants in primate models to see if we can transfer this technology to, you know, to something closer to human biology. So that's one element really at the kind of the beginning of T cells. Then uh, we'd also like to address the priming of T cells and the generation of adaptive res responses and particularly anti-cancer responses. Uh, so William Shi is heading up a project here where he's adapting the really exciting work he's been doing in DNA origami, which for those of you, many people in the audience are probably familiar with this, but for those who are not, the idea is to use DNA molecules as a means of building nanoparticles where we have precise control over the location of each chemical functional group and of agents we bind to these nanoparticles. In this case, we're using this as, an, as a strategy that enables us to precisely control the spacing and localization of each adjuvant molecule and each antigen that we load onto these particles and beginning to explore how this spatial aspect of presentation regulates the type of immune response. And we're really driving to get basically a, a TH1 driven response that will be very effective as an anti-cancer cell therapy. 
And then in the third major project, this part of this, we're addressing kind of the, uh, the later stages. And as many people in your audience will be familiar, adoptive T-cell therapies are now uh, just a tremendous success story in certain types of blood cancers. Not yet uh, the same level of success uh, clinically in terms of solid tumors, but the idea is we take T-cells typically from patients, we manipulate those cells often genetically, for example, to make CAR T-cells outside the body, and then we have to manufacture lots of these cells, and then we place them back into the patient to fight their cancer and hopefully uh, you know, cure, cure those patients of their cancer. Well, we're developing new types of artificial antigen-presenting cells that we can use to not just manufacture the T cells and manufacture them more rapidly in a large numbers, but to actually really tune the function of those cells. So we can start to say, gee, for this setting, you might need T cell populations that have these properties, while in another disease setting, you might need different properties. And the concept here is we now have the ability to direct those T cell populations and generate distinct products that we think will have distinct utilities in different disease settings. And then, you know, we're, we're layering this in with, for example, Eric Smith from the Dana-Farber, who's heading up one of the big translational labs there. Uh, has been, we're fortunate enough to get him engaged with the center, and he's doing a lot of adoptive cell therapies uh, as well. And so we're starting to try to marry some of these bioengineering strategies that I described in these three initial projects, for example, with some of his strategies to create new types of CAR T cells. Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. Last year, in conjunction with the launch of the I3 Center, Adivari Therapeutics was also spun out of your lab, building on a new vaccine technology that combines the capture of bacterial pathogens with effective immune reprogramming biomaterials to overcome common limitations in infection medicine. Can you tell us more about the startup and what they've been working on since? Yeah, so Adivari is a, is a great example of how the VIS works. So, uh, you know, we did initial academic research um, uh, in terms of developing this concept for biomaterial-based um, vaccines, originally in the cancer space. And you know, that work uh, made its way into the VIS, got taken over by, um, from the translational perspective by some of the staff here, uh, particularly Ed Doherty, uh, who's one of the lead um, staff scientists here at the VIS. Um, and they did a fantastic job of helping us you know, move this technology along, figure out a lot of the manufacturing issues, think about regulatory aspects. And then uh, the time came and so we decided it was appropriate to spin out this technology into the company. And uh, Ed and actually a, a group of people from the VIS went with the technology uh, basically to, to start it. And they're basically in the greater Boston area. Now they basically have a, a established lab space and they're up and running, uh, been successful with the initial round of fundraising. And so, uh, but you know, the VIS really enabled this group of people to learn the technology, to advance the technology. And then when the time was right, instead of having to bring in a whole new group of people and hand off the technology and hope that you know, they, could, they could quickly come up to speed, instead, the core people from the VIS uh, went with the company. And so you know, 
that has a, a huge benefit um, in terms of the technology transfer and really getting the people who know the technology best and are probably most passionate about it you know, directly engaged. So I think it's a, a great example of the model. In terms of what they're doing, um, so there's a couple, of, a couple of different aspects that they're working on. So we think that the vaccine technology will be broadly useful in many, many contexts. So you mentioned in terms of uh, the idea for infectious disease. So we do have uh, quite a bit of data and examples now that this approach of using these materials to present uh, or to accumulate large numbers of antigen presenting cells and then to present appropriate adjuvants or danger signals. For example, it can be fragments of bacterial pathogens as well as adjuvants we've shown can lead to actually very effective both humoral responses as well as cellular responses, which will be particularly important in terms of clearing established disease. And so they're developing the, this as a platform uh, against a variety of different types of infectious diseases and I think making some great strides there. They are in parallel also working on developing uh, this strategy as a cancer therapeutic vaccine platform as well. And there, what they're taking advantage of is that at least in certain types of cancer, what we've been able to demonstrate is that we can create a therapeutic vaccine that does not require us to load it with antigen, that we can place it in the body and use it in concert with chemotherapy, which will induce an immunogenic cell death or death of cancer cells, releasing their antigens, that then the antigen presenting cells that we concentrate and activate with the vaccine can take up traffic to the lymph nodes and generate adaptive immune responses. So in essence, it could become a personalized cancer vaccine in terms of the response, but would not require personalized manufacturing. There'd be a generic vaccine that could get used in many people. So they're exploring this uh, currently in the context of AML, basically moving the technology forward and, and addressing the, the usual things uh, that one has to do in a startup. We've been talking a lot about vaccines. And as you mentioned earlier, your lab developed the first implantable biomaterial cancer vaccine. With the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, immune understanding and engagement is arguably more important than ever. So as a pioneer in the immune engineering space, looking forward, what technologies do we need to advance to combat epidemics? Yeah, you know, I, I, we, need, we need a lot. Um, from a technology perspective, I think one of the really key things that unfortunately we've been very slow on in this particular pandemic is surveillance. You know, we, we need more rapid, less expensive, and uh, very in technology that can be broadly distributed. And we're beginning to get that uh, in terms of, you know, the SARS-CoV-2 antigen test, but we've been very, very delayed. And that's obviously has cost us in, in so many really tragic ways. So I think we need better surveillance, rapid surveillance. That's gonna be part of this. I think also from a therapeutic perspective, we need the ability to actually respond more quickly. Now the, the, the time scale for development of the mRNA vaccines, I mean, has been simply spectacular, but it still does take a lot of time to manufacture once we've identified you know, uh, the vaccine that can be effective. So if we have the ability to prefabricate you know, most, for example, of a generic vaccine, and then we would have that available to combine and basically move much more quickly to large-scale manufacturing. I think that could be something that would be tremendously helpful. And then, you know, we also need better test beds. And so you know, one of the things that the VIS has been working very hard on, as I'm sure you're aware from Don Ingber's work and others, is the organs on chip. 
And those might make really beautiful systems to in human biology as versus the animal biology we typically use in preclinical testing to rapidly explore, optimize new types of immunotherapies to treat these pandemics. Tying this all back to the translational science and academic entrepreneurship we've been talking about, for over a decade now, the VIS has been a hub of innovation, with Adivari being a great recent example. As a founding faculty member at the VIS, can you share more about your initial vision for the Institute? Yeah, you know, so, you know, initially it was quite broad and, you know, in, in hindsight, it didn't seem so at the time, but in hindsight, you know, a little bit vague. Uh, we wanted to originally enable translation. And we, you know, were very excited about the idea of using biology broadly to inspire how we built devices to interface with the body, control the body, and treat disease. And we thought that, you know, there's a couple of ways that we could enable the translation of, of ideas and technologies and inventions that would come out of that. Part of that would be bringing really smart people together. So creating a, a physical and a virtual space to bring people together that could collaborate and work together. We also wanted though to create a physical space because you know, so much of creativity arises out of you know, kind of chance encounters and engagements and discussions over coffee or over a beer you know, Friday night. So we wanted a physical space that people could get together, meet each other from different disciplines, talk and explore ideas. And then we wanted to create an opportunity where there would be the opportunity to then actually pursue these ideas. And you know, the oftentimes in Boston um, and other you know, hubs of innovation, there's lots of ideas, but you can spend a tremendous amount of time trying to put some resources together to, to pursue those innovative and creative ideas. And so it was really important as well that we thought by having the resources in terms of the types of physical facilities, core equipment and financial support to actually be able to identify the really interesting ideas and then to enable those to actually move forward and not just you know, kind of generically give money, but perhaps more importantly, have the right people. And so you know, we came up pretty quickly with this idea of uh, you know, bringing in people from industry that would be our partners and that would have the expertise to really help us move these things forward. So you know, we wanted to do translation. We had you know, these ideas on different ways that uh, kind of innovation and translation were limited. And so we tried to build an institute that addressed a number of these bottlenecks. I noticed your answer again, focused very much on the people. And before you said that the most important product of your lab is not the data, it's the people. So as we think about translational science and entrepreneurship, how do you think about mentorship and lab culture? Yeah, you know, I, I think those are both incredibly important and also, you know, changing with time. Um, so for, for mentorship, what we're trying to do is make an impact in our own lab, but we're also trying to make a much bigger impact. You know, we can really multiply the effect that each of us has um, if we're able to train and mentor a number of people who leave our labs and go on and basically continue to use their creativity and innovation to change the world. So I put a big emphasis on mentoring young people, you know, helping them to understand how we pursue research, how we identify important problems, you know, and then how we actually take those ideas and start trying to actually turn them into reality. So I think, you know, we need to think about taking time. We also need to give feedback. So, you know, a big part of this is taking enough time to not just uh, 
kind of take the data and run, but to talk with the students and the postdocs and the research staff about how they're approaching things, how we could improve things, and to really encourage collaboration. Um, you know, I think the days of individuals, you know, this kind of lone wolf out there in the research lab changing the world, that I'm sure that will still happen. Um, but most of the time, it's going to be collaboration that's going to lead to the big, the big impact. And so the lab culture, I think, is really important to that. And I try to, you know, create a lab culture where people feel like they are cooperating and that they're succeeding together. They're part of a team. They're not competing with each other in the lab. And so, you know, I recruit people. I talk to people. I try to um, engage with people to encourage and actually reward collaboration and working together and working well together. You know, and, and you can even think about this from a, if you want to be purely selfish about this, you know, the people in the lab are going to work really hard. And well, to be successful, they're probably going to need to work really hard. It's going to be really hard for them to work hard unless they actually like coming into the lab. So you want to create a culture, you know, where they have people that they're working with that they like, they feel like their ideas and their data is valued, and they feel like you're looking out for them. Wonderful, Dave. And I think this brings us to the last section of our podcast here. Before we wrap up, a few closing questions for you. We talked about a lot of really exciting problems that you're working on today. Help us perhaps maybe put this in a more of a macro context. What would you say are the grand challenges facing life sciences over the next 30 years? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. So one of the grand challenges, I think, is that, you know, we're increasingly more sophisticated in the approaches that we are able to take scientifically in engineering and even from a manufacturing perspective, you know, to make life-changing therapies. But one thing we've not been very good at is figuring out how to do that at a reasonable cost. Um, and, you know, we will, over the next 30 years, likely reach a breakpoint where our society simply can't afford all of the new therapies that we're developing. So we're going to need to think about how do we do this? And this is going to be particularly challenging because one of the other grand challenges is how do we personalize therapies? We know that pretty much every therapy we make, uh, let's say that gets FDA approved, there are certain patients that benefit and certain patients that don't. So, you know, we're trying to come up with approaches to personalize therapies, but if we get down to the point where we have, you know, an N of one for each therapy or therapeutic approach, that's going to be very challenging financially and, and logistically in many other ways. So how do we actually personalize medicine? How do we develop these increasingly complex therapeutic approaches, but do it in a way that's practical? So I think that's going to be really a a big challenge. You know, certainly uh, the increased ability we have for data analysis, computing will probably help us quite a bit with that. But there's, I think, a lot of challenges we haven't really even thought through yet and how we're going to address this. So I think, you know, that's, that's kind of two elements that I think are going to be really important is balancing this increasing complexity and all the challenges that come with it and the need to personalize medicines and come up with the right therapy for the right person. So let's see, on a really big scale, I think those are, that's probably the kind of the biggest thing from my perspective. And flash forwarding 30 years to now biotech in 2050, help us see the picture you painted here, solving the problems uh, that you've mentioned, where will we be in biotech? What will the landscape look like in 2050? Yeah, you know, I, I think the landscape is going to look really different. You know, the approach we take now, where kind of do things in a in a in a laboratory using wet chemistry, and we have a, a bunch of 
uh, you know, 96 well dishes and we're testing things in essence one at a time and, and measuring things, I think that's all going to have to accelerate. So I think we're going to see a merger of a lot of different fields. There's going to be increasing use of, of modeling and mathematical approaches to understand biology, uh, interpret biology, interpret responses to biology. We're going to see, you know, a lot of the tools of synthetic biology coming into play uh, much more extensively as we have the right intellectual framework to understand how our manipulations uh, regulate biology. The predictive part, uh, I think, will be matched by our ability uh, to actually design increasingly at smaller and smaller size scales, but impacting things at bigger size scales, so tissue scales. And so, you know, we're going to have uh, this idea of different disciplines working individually, I think, is going to completely washed out. We're going to have labs where a big part of it is going to be virtual. You know, we're going to have data scientists, we're going to have mathematicians, uh, you know, modelers working hand in hand with the experimentalists. We're never going to eliminate the experiments, um, but I think our experiments will become much more directed and much more specific. And I think we're also going to have much better models. You know, right now, most of what we do is experiments in, you know, single cell populations and culture, or we go and do experiments in young animals that don't mimic the disease settings that most often we're trying to address age you know, comorbidities, other illnesses, human biology. So I think we're going to have much better model systems. Some of this will be, you know, organs or organisms on a chip. We're also going to have, I think, new cell culture models uh, beyond that, that will be much more uh, relevant to human biology. And I think we're going to have animal models that are going to get much closer to key aspects of human biology as well. We've touched on a lot of topics today and many projects you're working on. Any closing thoughts you'd like to share? How can our audience perhaps learn more about your work? Yeah, so they could certainly learn more about the work. We have a, a laboratory webpage uh, based at Harvard University in the engineering school you can find. And then the VIS keeps a, a simply fantastic website that's a lot of fun to explore and, and learn more, not just about the work in, in our lab, in our platform, but across the Institute. So I'd say that's a great place to look. In terms of other closing thoughts, you know, I guess I would say I'm having a lot of fun uh, and I keep having more fun things as time goes on. And it's really because, you know, we're given the opportunity to address, I think, really important questions. We're able to interact with really smart, talented people. And so my thoughts are, you know, we should all try to replicate that. Surround yourself with smart people, with people that are smarter than yourself. Engage with them. Don't be afraid of addressing big problems and just, you know, keep working. I think we can definitely hear the smile in your voice today, Dave. Thanks again for joining us for an absolutely incredible episode here. We're very grateful for your time. Appreciate you joining us once again. Thanks. No, my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.